Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On Monday, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey announced new rules for prison good time incentives that allow some inmates to shorten their prison stays based on their behavior. Ivey signed an executive order that she said will provide, quote, clear rules for prison staff and inmates on how much good time credit will be lost for different categories of offenses and how an inmate can restore the credit. However, the order essentially ends good time or makes it extremely difficult for anyone to earn it given the brutal conditions across the prison system, said Carla Croder, executive director of Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Quote, this is absurd and reflects state leadership that is completely out of touch with the public safety crisis in Alabama prisons. It would be laughable if it weren't so sad and dangerous that anyone believes harsher punishments will fix this crisis and make anyone safer, Crowder said. She said many of the people eligible for good time and impacted by the executive order are young people incarcerated for nonviolent drug and property offenses. Inmates at Seattle's SeaTac Detention Center are facing cruel and illegal conditions without adequate access to medical care, food, and communication. Please join our Phones app on Tuesday, January 17th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, calling once or as many times as you can, asking that the Associate Warden's Office take immediate steps to correct the situation. Here is a script you can use. I'm calling on behalf of inmates at SeaTac Federal Detention Center asking for the leadership to address the cruel and illegal conditions at the facility. Without a long-term warden and the presence of leadership at the lunch line, it's been difficult for inmates to directly address concerns themselves. Because you've silenced them, I'm calling on their behalf to let you know that many people across the nation are watching SeaTac right now. Please take immediate steps to improve conditions for every inmate at SeaTac by providing a minimum of 2,000 calories a day, a doctor on-site at the facility, immediate access to prescription medications, immediate access to dental care, increased email access, and a long-term warden assigned to the facility. Again, that's Tuesday, January 17th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And call once or as many times as you can. Thank you. The Texas legislator gaveled into session on Tuesday, but as lawmakers were reconvening at the statehouse, people incarcerated in Texas prisons were demanding to be heard. A large-scale hunger strike in protest of the state's solitary confinement practices started Tuesday, with about 300 people incarcerated across the state reported to be participating. Texas is known to take a rather harsh stance when it comes to solitary confinement, keeping some inmates in isolation for years or even decades. Michelle Deitch, the director of the Prison and Jail Innovation Lab at the University of Texas at Austin, said the individuals are striking until the Texas Department of Criminal Justice meets a series of demands that were first made several months ago. The first demand is to change the indefinite nature of solitary confinement, also called restrictive housing. This makes it difficult for prisoners to know when they will get out of restrictive housing or what steps are required to do so, she said. Quote, 
They are also trying to move from more of a status-based system to a behavioral-based system. A lot of people are placed in restrictive housing simply because of their status as an identified gang member, not necessarily because they've broken any rules or behaved in a way that's dangerous to the community, Deitch said. So one of the requests is that they use behavior as a guide to who should be in there. Two Georgia men were released from prison, and one of them was completely exonerated after spending more than two decades behind bars when a true crime podcast revealed new evidence that all but destroyed the case authorities had built against them. Daryl Lee Clark and his co-defendant Kane Joshua Story were released from custody last week after spending more than 25 years imprisoned for the 1996 shooting death of 15-year-old Brylan Bowling, a friend of the pair according to a press release from the Georgia Innocent Project. New evidence from the true crime podcast Proof disputed the prosecution's case that Clark and Story had murdered Bowling with premeditation. You never think something like that is going to happen to you, said Lee Clark, who thanked the Innocence Project and the podcast for helping secure his release. We're pleased to continue sharing a conversation between Nicole Siegel and Anne Gray Fisher. Fisher's powerful book, the Streets Belong to Us, Sex, Race, and Police Power from Segregation to Gentrification, was published in 2022, and it's an account of gender and sexuality's crucial role in the history and exercise of police power. In this conversation, Fisher and Siegel discuss the archive and research at the foundation of the book, and its relationship to wider abolitionist organizing. They work through the relationship between sex work and vice policing, aimed primarily at women's bodies, along with race, which allowed wide swaths of black neighborhoods to be treated as red light districts, subject to intensified police surveillance and violence. Fisher shows that vice policing was key to developing the American ghetto, as well as its devastating effects on black people. Here they are. So one other thing I'll say is that prostitution laws, when I talk about them, I'm usually speaking to a broad rubric of morals laws like disorderly conduct, loitering, lewd and lascivious behavior, common night walking. There's this whole raft of laws that police could use in order to do their prostitution law enforcement on other women, right, with or without any real evidence that a woman has engaged in a so-called criminal act. Right, at their own discretion. Right, yes, the discretion part is really key. So when I talk about prostitution, I'm speaking specifically to this sort of nebulous but very powerful and capacious legal concept that is very broad and defined by police as a way to uh, make an arrest. Sex work, which was coined in the late 1970s by um, a sex worker named Carol Lee, uh, who has actually passed away this year, it is like moving in a more activist and feminist direction, speaks to the actual labor of people engaged in commercial sex. And I tend to use sex work later in the book when the prostitutes rights movement launches and takes off. So that's, that's later in the book when it's more historically in use since the 1970s. The problem then was how to talk about the women in my book who might not have, who were arrested, who were targeted, who were harassed, who were abused by police, who may or may not have even been engaging in commercial sex in the first place. Right. So many records I saw were of police 
you know, who, um, you, when you look at police records, you don't know, I mean, it's, when, when I look at police records in conjunction with what I already know about police practices, it makes the police reports very suspicious, right? What can we actually know about the women's lives through these state um, documents? Mm. And, you know, we have so many examples of, particularly of black women in the later period who were simply walking down the streets of their own neighborhoods, who were flagged as, um, as um, targets of prostitution law enforcement. Um, and so, and, and we also know that uh, sex workers, once they're arrested, become flagged as sex workers, no matter what they're doing with their daily lives, whether they're picking up their kids or going grocery shopping or waiting for a bus, police can still, after one arrest, it's very easy for police to make another arrest on these women. So how do we actually know what women are doing in their daily lives when I encounter them in the archive as, um, as targets of arrest without naming them as sex workers, right? I think about one woman in the 60s who was arrested and beaten by police in Los Angeles while she was walking to buy a stroller for her son. I certainly could not identify her as a sex worker. Um, so what I, what I do in the book is refer to any woman targeted by police as someone who is sexually profiled. This removes the burden of guilt, right? Or the stigma away from the women themselves and locates the source of the violence, the source of the action on police themselves. They had profiled someone as such, um, as a sexual criminal. Um, and by doing this, and I give all credit to, to Melinda Shadavert, Mindy Shadavert, who wrote a really fabulous history of sex worker activism with the phrase sexually profiled. By doing this, I hope to encourage folks to think about how sexually profiled people intersect with racially profiled people, religiously profiled people, right? And the ways that we can draw connections among groups who are targeted and vulnerable to police violence based on their simply their physical existence on city streets. I think we often forget the sexual profiling piece, um, but especially today when we think about the ways that trans women in particular are so, um, so powerfully vulnerable to police violence, it's a way that we can start to draw connections among folks who are targeted by police in order to um, um, build more solidarity and build more resistance. Yeah, you, you're so conscious of the implications for political practice of the history that you're offering in this book. And um, I, I really appreciated that about it. And in your discussion of the archive, I, I hear you citing Sadia Hartman, whom you do include in your footnotes. But when you're talking about how difficult it is to get at the lives of people who only appear in things like police archives, I hear you citing her and um, you know a series of other people who've talked about um, what happens to subalterns in historical practice. Totally. I mean, especially with an archive that's so driven by the state, right? The question of how to write against that and to find a truer story beneath the state's own stories about itself was um, a real process. Yeah. 
you 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 need your rebel archive as kelly Lytle hernandez says and exactly. you have it you have it <laughs> exactly so um you your story concerns the 20th century and several distinct historical periods in the 20th century um after this short glance back to the turn of the century you know prior to the 20th century and then you explore um the 20 years from prohibition, from the beginning of prohibition in 1920 through the depression, the end of the depression, then the period of World War II, then the post-war period. And I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about each of them in a bit more depth in a moment, but can you start out by giving us a brief overview of how policing changed in each of these different periods? Yeah, and that was actually to your point about the political story. I mean, that was um, really powerful when I sort of stepped back to think about what I had and what what the story looked like, because I think we often think that police have this sort of unchanging constant power. But when the book really gets going in the 1920s, what I found was that police were um, broadly disparaged. They had very little legitimacy. Um, you know, even federal reports were calling police a national joke. Um, things that I think would be shocking to us today to see in federal reports, you know, government uh, documents, to see that, um, to see that today would be astonishing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even the, I don't really get into the cultural production, but you know, the 20s and 30s was um, a site of tons of um, popular films, Keystone Cops, um, that really make police look foolish and incompetent um, and corrupt. And so when the book really gets going during prohibition, police are widely regarded as uh, brutal and lawless. Um, Which one of you the say is, is in part because of prohibition, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think prohibition does a lot to speed that process along because um, prohibition and uh, sexual policing, right? The enforcement of prostitution laws, the enforcement of sexual normativity, behavioral normativity on city streets, that's kind of where both the brutality of policing and the corruption intersected. One of the reasons why going back to the uh, white slavery reformers, one of the reasons why they wanted to abolish red line districts was because they they knew it was a source of, of political and police corruption. You know, police would take payments, take bribes from major vice operators to look the other way, to withhold arrest, and they would share those bribes with the reigning mayor or uh, or even a, um, a rival campaign, right? So the corruption among police was, was widely known. And when the red light districts were abolished, there was still this really powerful investment among mayoral uh, administrations and police department brass to still be able to enrich themselves from sexual commerce. And so when it moves to, when, when a lot of the red light district activity is pushed into black neighborhoods, 
police and politicians are able to continue to profit off of criminalized activities, criminalized sexual activities. And what happens across the 20th century, and this is, you know, I have some, I have a political cartoon in the book where a vice cop, vice cops were like major targets of public hatred and hostility. Um, there's a political cartoon where a vice cop is saying to a white slave, um, no, you give me $5, right? And the white slave is looking very white and vulnerable and, and the vice cop is looking very um, uh, brutal, right? So what really happens across the 20th century is really the story of how we got where we are now, where criticism of the police is um, unpopular. <laughs> it comes with a lot of retribution and it's very hard even among like the elected left to find anyone who would take on the police in the way that journalists, you know, federal elected leaders and state leaders were taking on the police. It's unheard of today. So to see that happen and the key argument that I make as we move through these different periods, the key argument that I make is that sexual policing was ironically both the site of so much police criticism or criticism targeted to at police and yet all at the same time, it became the way that police could prove themselves and justify their work as protective rather than brutal, right? That um, prostitution enforcement was um, a way for the police to regain their legitimacy and, um, and seize more power across yeah. the 20th century. But not, not regain even, but just gain for the first time, that sexual policing was the source of police legitimacy in the 20th century. That's an astonishing claim. I think that the police got a lot of legitimacy by, um, in particular, because I'm looking at uh, the relationship between whiteness and blackness specifically. So I think we could they, we can make other arguments about how police are gaining their legitimacy. But if we think about whiteness and blackness in urban America across the 20th century, police were expected to contain black populations and, um, and to enforce moral order. And through sex work, these two objectives converged, right? That through containing blackness um, and enforcing sexual norms, they were able to um, accomplish, um, ac they were able to do work that, like that broad white residents, that white residents broadly in the cities um, thought, made, thought uh, police were proving their value, right? And that, that this was what they were supposed to be doing. Yeah. And, and in fact, you make this other very astonishing argument um, that sexual policing produced the ghetto. And um, that's quite a claim. You know, I think it's, it's one of the things that this book is going to be read for, for years. And by the way, I totally follow your argument. And I think you're right. But can you explain how did sexual policing produce the ghetto? 
Right. So we're in that moment where vice districts are being shifted into Black neighborhoods. Um, Here I turn again to Sadia Hartman, um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, where she argues that, you know, in the early 1900s, the ghetto has not yet, is not a foregone conclusion. Um, And so up until really the, the, the 20s there and through the 20s, there is um, there is a lot of violent work being done, particularly through police as the main enforcers of urban order to cement the boundaries of blackness in cities. And be, and it's not a coincidence, right, that this is happening as red light district activity is being shifted harder and harder into these same neighborhoods. And police become the enforcers of the borders of um, sexual deviance, sexual criminality as they understand it. And that becomes a really powerful physical manifestation of policing uh, the borders of blackness itself. Um, I have a lot of examples. I was really, I will, I will also say that just writing this uh, in the writing, trying to figure out the, the earlier piece, what was happening particularly in black neighborhoods in the 1920s was hands down um, the hardest piece to put together. Huh. But I landed on this idea of police enforcing segregation through sexual policing just by what Black journalists were saying in the Black press. Oh. Um, I'm thinking in particular of one, um, one journalist in Harlem was writing, was reporting on how white women were being told to stay away from Harlem um, because uh, they would get arrested as presumed sex workers. And the reporter said, right, this is how the this is how Jim Crow, the walls of Jim Crow harden around us Um, by letting white men come through for their, um, you know, white men have total freedom of movement throughout vice districts and black neighborhoods. Um, by permitting white men to to travel through into black neighborhoods for um, sex, gambling, alcohol consumption, but enforcing and arresting white women who come through or arresting any white woman seen with a person of color. Um, that's a really key way to, um, as the reporter said, erect and enforce Jim Crow borders around um, a black neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, the the hyper-policed know what's going on. (laughs) It's kind of no secret. It just takes people who assume the benevolence of the police a long time to catch up. And to see the ways in which race and gender are involved in buttressing the ideas of each other. So in, in this case, you are pointing out how the police focus on gender and sexuality in terms of the policing of prostitution laws produces the racialized space of the ghetto, which is to say that it produces race. Absolutely. Moving from understanding how the law is positioning gender and sexuality to how that produces race. It's just 
such a clear exposition of this dynamic of the relational nature of these categories of social power. Absolutely. And I think it really comes to land the hardest on Black women. Um, I spend a lot of time talking about how in this early period, when the purity of white womanhood is sort of front and center for police enforcing uh, these boundaries of um, in these Black neighborhoods, Black women are subjected to um, something that amounts to what I call violent neglect, but we could also think about it in terms of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of organized abandonment. Black women are not, I mean, arrest numbers, arrest data only tells a partial story. It's dependent on what police are saying. It just It's just a measure of what police are doing. So it's not a total story, but we do know that white women were arrested more in this period than black women relative to their population proportion. So proportionally more white women are being arrested than black women. And that doesn't mean that black women are safer. That doesn't mean that black women are experiencing lenience. On the contrary, black women are being um, targeted by both white men and police as uh, as sex workers, right? So their their presumed sexual availability um, becomes uh, transforms their bodies into sites of um, uh, of vulnerability and violence. Um, at the same time, black women are still vulnerable to arrest because police assume that anyone within the borders of the vice district, which are also a black neighborhood, are sexually criminal or deviant. Um, and so it's this toxic combination of state neglect and state action, which are both violent in their own ways, um, that produce a lot of um, uh, really harmful precarity and uh, danger in Black women's lives. I'll just offer one example from the book of um, how Black women are uniquely um, vulnerable to violence within this sort of Jim Crow regime that we're talking about in the 20s. Um, uh, Ike and Eva Bolin were, uh, um, lived in a Black neighborhood in Pittsburgh. Um, Eva was awoken one night when she found five white men who had broken into her apartment. So she's terrified. She grabs a knife to defend herself. Um, and, uh, and then her husband awakens and there's, um, a scuffle, right? Windows are broken, chairs are thrown, the police come to the scene. The five white men tell the police that they were looking for a house of prostitution in this black neighborhood. And in the end, it was Ike and Eva Bolin who were arrested and charged with, I forget the charge, I could check the book, but they are charged with, I think, criminal assault. There's a question of whether Ike is going to lose his job at the local factory that he works at, right? And so this is a way in which the, the presumed sexual criminality of Blackness turns into a story of domestic terror in Eva's life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it's a, it's a really important story for thinking about both the ways that policing itself produces ideas about race and gender that then in turn um, produce terror and danger and violence in black women's lives, uh, whether or not they themselves are being actively targeted as um, sex workers. Beautifully put.
This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. If you want to support our work, please visit patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. You can also find us on all social media platforms. You can hear our archive of over 300 episodes at kitelineradio.org. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or send us a letter at kiteline, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening. <laughs>